For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Building your network is not about finding more people you like. I mean, it's nice when you'd like them, but you have to get beyond the idea of looking for people who you like or who are like you in spirit. That is just a very, very limiting strategy. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the Hard Truths Playbook you never got. Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. In this podcast, we focus on career success, and a big driver of that is networking. And a key theme is that a strong network can be a huge source of power and is something we can all build. I've looked a lot at the research literature on networking and read many books on the topic, so I figured, why would I want to pick up another one? But when I became aware of a new book, Your Invisible Network, I had to pick it up. First, the title was compelling, but more the author, Michael Melcher, is someone I deeply respect. And so I was curious, particularly since he coaches many people from traditionally underrepresented groups and is a leading leadership expert and coach. And I'm glad I picked it up. It's actually not what I expected. And indeed, the blurb doesn't lie. It does break new ground, and it's immensely practical. So I actually followed the book's exercises, and I thought, what better way to have a deeper conversation, strengthen my relationship, to go to the next step in my relationship with Michael, than invite him here to talk about his book on my podcast. I'm hoping that through our discussion, coach to coach, human to human, we can help you in the audience get over the networking word that so many of us despise and help you create, maintain, and leverage your invisible network in ways that you perhaps have not thought about, in ways that, as Michael says, will transform your career. Super honored to have Michael here today. He's one of the world's leading executive coaches. The path there was through public school, then to Harvard, the Foreign Service in Asia, a JD MBA from Stanford, corporate lawyer turned writer and coach, and we're all glad he moved into coaching, partner at Next Step Partners. Your Invisible Network is his third book. Lastly, 
Michael was my first coach and opened my mind to how coaches could help people tremendously. Michael, welcome to 97% Effective. Hey there, Michael. I'm really happy to be here today. Thanks for having me. You share in your book that vulnerability is a strength. We're going to talk about this and how often leading with your accomplishments, that humble brag that a lot of people do, really doesn't deepen our relationships with other people. Um, but in fact, and you, you talk about workshops you used to give way back in the day to elite MBAs, that often sharing your failure or showing vulnerability does deepen that relationship, engage other people in relationships. Now, you do have a very powerful curated LinkedIn and bio. And in the book, which I think everyone needs to read, you share a lot of personal stories and some of your own failures. But in the spirit here, as we start deepening our relationship and with listeners um, at the outset, could you share one personal challenge that we can't find out about you and that you feel like it's important for you and others to know? Well, Michael, you really are making me walk the talk here. (laughs) (laughs) So sure, I'll, I'll share a deeply vulnerable time in my life. So there was a time when I was around 38 years old before I started coaching that I had gone down a pretty traditional path and I tried to do some exciting things. I wrote one book that was supposed to be a great success, wasn't a great success. And then I did an internet startup that failed hideously. That then coincided with with a kind of recession. And I found myself at 38, unemployed for more than a year, and then starting up a new enterprise uh, that I wasn't sure would be successful. I was paying my mortgage on credit cards I did not feel like a successful person at all. It was sort of what happened on my promise. And at one point, I had $130,000 in consumer debt. So I had a spreadsheet with all these different credit cards. And I knew exactly when the 0% offer would would go away or the 6% offer would have. And so I would kind of rotate them periodically to kind of manage my float. And while I was sort of kind of impressed at my ability to just survive. It was definitely not where I thought I would be at age 38. And it was a really, really tough period of time for me. I had no idea. Because of my curated LinkedIn. (laughs) Because the curated LinkedIn. LinkedIn. But you do. And I think people ought to uh, read the book because each of your chapters starts with stories of your clients and, and that you share as well. And I feel like I really got to know you even more through reading your book. Well, it started to become a little bit of a memoir. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm curious where you were at 38, if we could date the year, because that might be close to when I first met you. And to, to share a personal story I haven't told people as well, I was at the what I felt a very good point in my corporate career, and I let it go. I got married. We moved. My wife is from Spain, and we moved down to Spain, and I said, everything will work out. And after the parties, after settling down, ready to get back to things, first week, the phone didn't ring. Month, first month, the phone didn't ring. First three months, the phone didn't ring. And then their panic started to set in about what was I going to be doing (laughs) set up here in Spain. And actually, that's another story. That's when I started working with you. So 
Yeah, so this so the episode I'm talking about was really from around 2001 to 2004, I would say. There had been a mini collapse in the internet sector in the on the consumer side that presaged a much larger internet bubble popping, layering 9/11 onto that was another kind of cataclysmic event. And so there was a fairly long period where it was just really hard to get a, a mainstream job. And and to be honest, I wasn't looking back, I don't think it was entirely focused in the way you have to be if you're gonna make that that happen. So I was kind of working out some stuff on what I really wanted to do, but then I was dealing with as as you do with the consequences of making these choices that take you a bit out of the mainstream. And there, you know, when I saw your notes for this session, you mentioned that that one of the purposes is avoiding vacuous feel-good leadership happy talk. And that's just like music to my ears because there are a number of of like fantasies that operate in the work world, like leap and the net will appear, or just you know, live your purpose, or just go and be an entrepreneur. And and there are valid reasons for doing those things, but there's also there are also significant trade-offs. And we tend to see edited or curated versions of these stories, uh, usually that end with amazing success, but it can also go the other way. And it's important to talk about what makes a difference and what do you do if, if, if you're not in the, in the great spot and how do you kind of get out of that? 2006 was when I was working with you. And so clearly when you came out of this, starting the coaching business and yeah, many of the themes that I see in the book are things that we started to do when we faced I was facing reality. The phone wasn't ringing of how do I build a new network? I didn't have one in Spain, <laughs> remarkably. So when I read the book, yes, these, these themes came up. And let's, let's dive right into it. Again, I want to say I, I, I love the book. And again, not in the way that I had expected. Networking was on the title. I knew it was the theme. But the book is really about relationships, what makes them work, how to build and nurture and, and benefit from them. And that, in kind of retrospect, it was kind of like, duh. But it was this powerful reframe for me that was with the stories, practical exercises, and very useful scripts that, that made it immensely practical. You've been doing coaching now for years. And why did you choose to focus on the topic of, of networking? And why did you call it invisible network? Sure. Well, Coaching, in my experience, around 70% of the time or more comes down to some combination of relationships and communications, which are words that are incredibly important but don't necessarily sound that important when you first hear them. But really, it, it all comes down to that. That's what makes the difference, and that's where all the complexity is. So I knew that there was something there. I've always been attracted to topics where there's just something off, something missing, some kind of missing nuance. And I would say that the problem with the networking subject is that most of the treatments tend to be very like one dimensional. It's all about extending your network. It's all about meeting more people moving into the weak tie area, which is correct. Like that is important. That's like the horizontal, but there's also a vertical, which is how you actually deepen those relationships and make something of them. And there is much less written about that. So maybe 80% of the books on these topics are on the just networking side, and then maybe 20% are on the kind of relationship development deepening side, but they're rarely combined. And then I guess the third dimension is how do you actually deal with this as a human being? How do you be authentic? How do you fit it into your life? 
how do you decide what to do? Like, when do you start and when do you stop? And so I wanted to create this three-dimensional approach to kind of illuminate a lot of this. The second thing is, what was the real motivation? This book actually came out of another idea. So I had circled around an idea of writing a book about what it's like to be first in your careers. So it could be first-generation college student. It could be first in your family to go to business school. But you could also be from a middle-class family and be the first person to go into corporate law or work in Hollywood or be an entrepreneur or what have you. And what happens is that you are making important decisions at a young age that have long-term consequences, but you don't really have any guidance for how to make those decisions. So I wanted to, to provide something there. And further, a lot of the current attention to people who, let's say, are the first focuses on like structural barriers and kind of larger patterns in history and power and this and that, which is, you know, it's a contribution. What does it do if you're 21 years old and you're graduating from Texas A&M with your degree in industrial engineering? Or what if you're 40 and you decided to leave a large company and do something entrepreneurial? Or what if you're 55 and you're trying to reinvigorate your career? Um, and make it more satisfying and, and fulfilling. What do you actually do? So that's what I felt I could do is, is provide an answer to what you do. So for various reasons, I, I didn't think I could quite get the right hook on the first generation book. But, but I also realized that most of what I was talking about was about relationship development. And I knew that that would be a topic of general interest. But then I wanted to infuse it with a lot of stories that you don't typically get in business books of real people facing real barriers and overcoming them. Not, not always easily with a mixture of failures and successes, but I, I, I knew that that would be compelling and that's really what motivated me to write it. Yeah. The stories, the majority of which are not business people, I, I think are very refreshing and expand how I, I was thinking about the topic. And it does give this three dimensional to your point, look at relationships and networking. I want to, to tackle one of these phrases which you attack in the book. You know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. That one gets used so much, and you would expect that in every networking book. I've probably even written that in a networking article. Say why you hate that phrase so much. Okay. I hate the phrase because it's glib and it's dismissive. And it's misleading. It's a type of thing that has an element of truth so that it feels believable, but there's also a part that's incorrect about it. So the correct part is that you need to know people. You can be the most competent person in the world. You can be the most hardworking. But unless you've formed relationships with, with a number of different types of stakeholders and maintain them, you are not going to reach your potential, period. It just will not happen. So you do need to know people. You cannot simply rest on your achievements or your work ethic. However, what I dislike about the phrase is that it implies that we live in this kind of cheesy world where hard work and actual competence don't really matter. That if you meet the right person, that will kind of lift you up or other people will be lifted up unfairly ahead of you. And I just don't think that is true. We live in a very, very, very efficient economy. And it's gotten more so over the last decades. So factors like automation, international trade, 
even things like KPIs and different sorts of, of techniques, so even, even things like KPIs in the employment world mean that we're constantly looking at competence and people's ability to add value. And the time when you could just sort of hang out in a job for 20 years and phone it in and get a retirement, that has long since passed. It just doesn't exist. And where we do notice it is these are sort of the exceptions that prove the rule. So yeah, if you're related to a CEO or board member and are kind of a dimwit, you still might be able to get an unpaid internship in some company where you do nothing for the summer. But that's about it. You're you're not going to last in a job if you don't have the bona fides. It simply won't happen. So you definitely need competence and you need a work ethic. You put that together with relationships and then you can really accomplish something. So many of the people listening here, particularly to, to this podcast, are highly competent. They're highly accomplished. A lot of them get frustrated because they see other people moving by and they're looking for those ingredients or forces that will help them you know, advance in their career. And so many of them looking at this topic will say, right, Michael, okay, I agree on that. I believe relationships and networks are important and I'm listening <laughs> or they pick up your book. Where should they start? I, I guess this is kind of the... I've, I've got it. I've mentally kind of, you know, see these things. Starting is often the hardest part. Um, you know, where do you and kind of in the book get people to look at as a point of departure? There are two ways of starting. One is how you're analyzing the situation, the way you're framing it, the, the strategy you're trying to enact over time. And the second is what, what can you do today to make a difference? So they're, they're both, they're both important. In terms of the strategy, there are really seven types of relationships that are important for your career over time. Those are bosses, colleagues, clients, weak ties, mentors slash sponsors, beneficiaries, and friends. And I explain in the book what each of these are. And then there are also some factors in what a relationship is, how you develop it, what it means to have a reciprocal relationship. So it's helpful to understand that as well. But basically, you have these seven categories. And some of those categories are people that you will naturally like. And some of them are people that you're kind of stuck with and you have to make the best of. Some of those people are folks that are already in your life. And some you will have to push forward to meet. You will have to disrupt a kind of homeostasis to, to find them. And, and so they're different. And that was one of the points of my book is that Building your network is not about finding more people you like. I mean, it's nice when you'd like them, but you have to get beyond the idea of looking for people who you like or who are like you in spirit. That is just a very, very limiting strategy. So you want to understand these different categories and overall you create a system for gradually connecting with them. And a lot of the book is about how, how you do this. The second thing is what can you do on any given day? Let's say you want to start right now and get somewhere. The most important thing you can do is start to regularly reach out to your weak tie network. So weak ties are people who you don't know very well at all or whom you've fallen out of touch with. So in a way, you and I were weak ties because we we had our moment 2006. We're kind of aware of each other, but we're not part of each other's regular lives. And then recently we reconnected. Um, so I would say if you want to start right now, what you should do is uh, – in the next week, you should reach out to three to five weak ties. So people that you know or kind of know or once knew and just check in with them. 
And my advice would be don't even ask for anything. Don't have a particular reason. Just reach out, find out how they're doing, uh, what's new with them, and you can share a bit about what's going on with you. It's sort of like getting in the habit of, of stretching, right? On any given day, you don't need to stretch. You might not have time, but it's a good habit to get into, and it will have immediate benefits. And also when you're 80, you'll be really happy that when you were in your 30s or 40s, you did this habit of stretching. So it's kind of starting to create this habit through whatever means you can is, is the best way to start. And and the book, I, I think, is great because you've put in scripts, you put in how-tos, these 20-minute exercises in each chapter. So this very simple exercise you talked about, if someone's still thinking about how do I reach out to a week tie three to five this week, could go into the book and pull a piece of that. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoff. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. My follow-up question to this is, that helps. It's kind of simple and a way to build the habit. But it almost always feels to me, right, coaching clients or even myself, right? I'll, I'll, I'll start and then I'll stop at some certain point. And I imagine, let's say you're working with one of your clients and they're going to start doing these things, but then they come back into a session, they haven't done anything. And you're kind of probing with them. What, what is usually the, the barrier or how do you dig into that with them? Well, let me answer that in two ways. The first is that building, starting to build your network and spending more time on relationships requires a certain kind of activation energy. So there is this moment where you have to start. It's sort of like if I'm going to join a gym, I have to sign up and I have to actually go a couple times. You know, there's like a before and after when I'm not doing this and then when I'm doing this. And yes, I suppose you need to have a certain belief that it's going to work believe it will be important to you, not be struggling. Like, why should I have to go to a gym? It's just like a you know, capitalist invention to keep humans on treadmills. Okay, well, you need to work through that so that you actually just go, right? So once you start this process, within a period of time, you'll create a positive reinforcement cycle, and it will become easier and more natural, and you'll more easily think about how you can do this and how you can you know, work on relationships. Um, some people are going to be naturally more into it and some people are going to be naturally a bit more hesitant about doing it, even when you're doing well. So there is sort of a variety of experience, but you will eventually get a positive reinforcement cycle and it will kind of take off. Now, if you were looking at the reasons why people don't do it, people may feel unskilled. They're not sure what they should say. They don't want to say something awkward. They might feel they're imposing on people that it is sort of taking something away from others to try to connect with them. They may not be clear about why they're doing this. And so if you don't really have a reason why it's hard to keep going, they may simply be busy. They may be spending a lot of time on just distracting activities like Twitter or Facebook or all the different ways we distract ourselves and I kind of go into a lot of these different reasons. I don't think there is a single reason why people don't do it. It's just that it takes some additional effort. And so you have to 
believe in it to some degree and you have to be willing to do something in some degree. So I do go into a lot of the barriers and, but really what I'm after is, okay, let's just work through your particular situation and figure out how do you actually get started in this so that you can start benefiting from that positive reinforcement loop. And you address this piece and I hear it from a lot of people. It's, oh, I feel a lot of people will say, I feel weird reaching out. And you say something that I found very provocative also in the book of you say feelings don't matter. You just kind of say feelings don't matter. Another provocative statement from you. Can you, what did you, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Your feelings are not a guide to what you should do. So you feel weird. So you feel awkward. I don't, I don't care. I don't give a shit at this point. And I, I say that as somebody, I'm the most feelingest feeler guy ever. Like I have tons of feelings all the time and I've just learned that they're not the best guide to action. The first reason is that when you are engaging in this, you're disrupting something. You are disrupting the way you're currently living. And in a way you're disrupting the lack of contact between you and another person. So yeah, it feels a little bit different from just hanging out. Number two it can feel uncomfortable. Well, all growth feels uncomfortable. That's what growth is, is you're trying something different. If you do not feel uncomfortable in your life, you're probably not growing. And if you do feel uncomfortable, there's a reasonable chance that you're actually doing things that you know have growth potential. And the third is the way you feel anticipating something is not the way you will feel doing it, right? So, you know, I, I to this day, am not excited about going to the gym and I will have to push myself into doing it. But once I go, it's okay. Once I walk through the door, I sort of know what to do. And after I actually do some sort of workout or another, I always feel good about myself. So if I compare what I anticipated would be my feeling with how it actually is once I'm done with it, it's totally different. And I just know that this works. So people, 90% of people's hangups are from the initiation side, not from the other side. And the fourth thing is that People generally like it when you reach out. So I, I just read this fun phrase, which is nobody waves, but everybody waves back, right? And so to be effective at building relationships, you're actually going to be doing stuff that most people don't do. You're going to take the initiative. You're not, you're not like joining a party that everybody's already there. You're kind of starting the party yourself. And that, that just means you're going to have to put a little more out there than other people are, but it will be, it'll be beneficial. So all this is why I would say, yeah, you can recognize your feelings, but but don't take them so seriously all the time. They're they're not really great guides to living. And then just doing it, you then experience it, and then in the experiencing things, things happen there. Yeah, although it's interesting because I also feel like it's important to reflect a little bit and compare what was the result with how I thought it would be so that you start changing the thought loop in your head. Because otherwise, it's actually really easy to maintain that fear, discomfort every time and not realize that nine times out of 10, it's not actually justified. So a kind of reflection on what I anticipated versus what happened can also be really useful. So to go you know, deeper now into the building, this part really about relationships in the book, you talk about an underlying code of how relationships work. There's six rules you outlined. Could you talk more about this part? I think most people haven't heard this language. I found it new. The central idea of, of making bids. Could you share more about that? Sure. 
So a bid is the relational aspect of any type of request or invitation. Let's say that your wife says, hey, honey, this new Iranian film that won an Oscar is showing. Do you want to go see it? And then you respond, you know, I don't really like movies with subtitles, but thanks. Okay. So you are, you know, you're politely responding to the request, to the specific transaction that's suggested. But it's also likely that underneath that specific request was a bid. The bid is a sort of an assertion of how you'd like the relationship to go. So in that example, she'd be inviting you to a particular movie, but what she's also saying is, I would like to spend time with you, or I'd like us to spend time together. That means that when you're you want to recognize the bids and then respond it because yeah, maybe you hate movies with subtitles, but you can acknowledge that you say, you know, I don't like movies with subtitles, but what if we um, go for a walk at sunset for 45 minutes and just talk about our day? Well, that might, that, that is actually recognizing the bid and kind of taking it up. So you're kind of looking beyond the specific transaction and looking at the bids. So in, in relationships, we're constantly making bids back and forth and you, you need to make them, but you also need to recognize what they are. And so a good habit to go into is thinking about when somebody is making an invitation or suggestion, is there a bid behind it? So, you know, our relationship, you actually mentioned this in, in the intro. So technically, I am a guest on your podcast, and you've previously been a guest on my podcast. So we're doing this thing. But we could also look at it as, hmm, maybe, maybe Michael Wonderoth invited me on this because he wants to reconnect and kind of deepen. And and now we're kind of like thought partners in the same space. And that's actually a different relationship from how we were before. And we both wrote books and yours actually came out several months before mine is going to come out. And maybe I can learn something from you there. And and so it's kind of an invitation, both to this one specific thing, but to take the relationship farther. So bids determine a lot about how relationships go forward. The other concept you mentioned is 15% 15% risk, it actually is. So that is from David Bradford and Carol Robin, who teach this very famous course nicknamed Touchy Feely at Sanford Business School. And the idea is that to get to deeper intimacy, deeper connection, deeper vulnerability, deeper humanity, you want to go beyond just autopilot what is most comfortable. You want to start sharing things and asking things and kind of raising the stakes a bit on your relationships they make this excellent point that you don't want to just be on autopilot, but you also don't want to do something that's so scary that if it doesn't go your way, you're going to be completely dispirited by it. So the idea is to kind of pick an action that if you want to take your relationships up a a level, pick an action that is a challenge to you, but if it doesn't go well, you can recover from it, right? So an example might be you're really committed to your career, you really want to get ahead, you know you need to get your boss's feedback, but your boss is kind of scary to you in some ways. So the two, the overly low risk thing is just to kind of hang out and do nothing. The high risk thing might be going to your boss and saying, I want you to give me really direct feedback on everything I'm doing well or poorly, you know, right now. Maybe that's too scary. Or possibly hey, boss, come to my home for dinner with my spouse and and your spouse and let's talk. That might also be too much. But you could say something like, you know, hey, boss, after our next presentation, I would love it if you could spend maybe three to five minutes just giving me some feedback on how that went. You know, it's it's a little bit in the future. You're prepared. 
it's easy for you, it's probably easy for that person. So that would be an example of like a 15% risk. And so that sits in the, you have a section in the book where you talk about this risk managed approach. You use the term that you're in kind of this zone of learning where you're growing, but it's not too much or it's not playing it too safe. Yeah. And this coincides with your writing, right? Right. I, I really liked your book. And again, because it was just a very clear and direct. And as I understand it, one of your points is power occurs. Power is real. It's something that has an impact. You can learn how to manage it. And you shouldn't just have this wide-eyed, happy-go-lucky approach to work where you just assume if I'm completely authentic all the time, then that's going to be the best possible thing because there's situations where you might not want to be fully authentic or fully let down your guard. So we're kind of looking at risk management from both sides of the of the table. What I would say is that you always want to be pushing into greater humanity, greater intimacy, greater transparency, but you do it on kind of a step-by-step basis where you're kind of experimenting, you're trying something, you're seeing how it goes, you're trying something else, seeing how that goes, how you how you how you feel. That's what I would call is the the risk management approach. On a previous podcast, I had Peter Bellamy from University of Virginia on, and he he made a very good point. He also talked about using vulnerability as a strength of, you know, being kind of situationally aware and thinking about what the context and situation would call for. And showing vulnerability can build strength, can build deeper relationships, as you say. And what you've just talked through, you know, is is what I also bring up in my book of, of be very careful of certain situations where going overboard with the vulnerability, maybe a career limiting move or inappropriate in that situation. Are there other kind of advices, you know, vulnerability in the workforce, a lot of people talk about it, but it does have this downside. Are there other pieces of advice that these nuances that you talk a lot about in the book that you would, you want to bring up here? Sure. One of the things that I write about is to what extent can you anticipate how interactions or conversations are going to go? Basically, you cannot predict how they're going to go. So people hold themselves back when they try to overly game the system, when they try to figure out ahead of time, okay, who is going to be the most important contact? What am I going to get out of that conversation? Let me focus all my firepower on the most important ones. Let me not waste my time with the less important ones. And the thing is you can't know. So there are two ways that you can't know. First of all, out of 10 conversations, it is very difficult to predict ahead of time which ones will be super powerful and which ones will be kind of eh, not, not so useful. It's just very difficult to know what the result will be. So what I tend to tell people is come up with a, a ratio of expected success. And I would say out of 10 conversations, you might have two conversations that are amazing. You might have four or five conversations that are kind of, okay, I mean, solid, but no, no great immediate results from that. And maybe you might have a couple of conversations that are a little bit painful, you know, very dry at the end, you kind of feel, well, that wasn't really worth it. There's some ratio similar to that, that I would say operates. And in my experience, I've never been able to predict ahead of time, what will be the home run conversations. It's just a very sort of random process. But what that also means is that you don't game it too much. You, you have a set of people you're trying to reach out for, 
you try to set them up effectively. And then if you have a really dull conversation that's like paint drying or something very awkward, you're like, okay, well, now I've checked off one of the two out of 10 that are going to be that category, and the next ones are probably better. So that that's one thing I would say. The second thing is that in any given conversation, it is hard to know where things are going to end up. And this is what I call minute 32. So minute 32 is a stand-in for the moment that the good stuff really starts coming out, the unexpected good stuff. And it just means that you have spent enough time talking to somebody, you've gone through your initial agenda, you've talked about your backgrounds, you've covered whatever subject was, you've, you've gone over what could be predicted, and then you're kind of more loose, and then you find these unexpected things that, that pop up. And I have a bunch of examples about this. Um, for instance, I had a client who was running for public office for Congress um, a couple of years after I worked with her. And I wanted to introduce her to this wealthy man I knew who, who donated to democratic causes. And I asked him, will you, will you talk to Lauren? He's like, well, I don't really give to primaries, but yeah, for you, I'll just, I'll just have initial chat if that's okay. Well, it turns out that they discovered they both had some connection with the university of Michigan and were really into university of Michigan sports. And one of them was from Florida, Lauren, I, to, I had no idea she had any connection. I kind of knew this wealthy guy was very sportsy and I th- might've remembered he came from Michigan, but I, it certainly wasn't top of my mind. I could never predicted that they would make that connection and that, that then he, he did become a big fundraiser for her, you know, despite his saying upfront that he, he wasn't. And I'm just seeing this type of thing happen again and again and again. So the purpose of trying to have conversations as opposed to just email exchanges is that you open yourself up a bit more to the serendipity that, that can come. So that is part of the nuance that I wanted, wanted to convey and, and kind of just two practices to, to, to keep in mind. And in, in the book, I, I write extensively about each of these and how you can try to set them up. Yeah, I particularly liked and I wrote down here this part around minute 32, which you've just talked about, but you said, don't avoid randomness, be intentional yet open. So good things emerge. Yeah. It's kind of like a Zen koan or something like, yeah. what did I say? Did I say don't? <laughs> Michael, this has been a great overview of core practices on building relationships. Next up, I want to speak about how to actually operationalize this. The conversation starters, closers, asks. Because while you speak about serendipity, you also directly say in your book, don't wing it. I, I would love to. I would love to talk extensively about my ideas that you want to be open to serendipity without just winging it. So I look forward to continuing the conversation. Excellent. Thank you for your time. What does Michael mean by don't wing it? Tune into the next episode of 97% Effective where I finish my conversation with executive coach Michael Melcher about his book, Your Invisible Network. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwinderoth.com.
W-E-N-D-E-R-O-T-H.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.